what these tools can do is to pull the curtain back on claims about determinacy of language that textualists have been making. And, and it's a little bit of a not so fast. We've been under delivering on the promises of textualism. We've been claiming to find determinacy in dictionaries, but it turns out it isn't there. Welcome to Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. This is Eden Bernstein, and today Alexis Knudsen and I will be talking about corpus linguistics with Justice Thomas Lee, the Associate Chief Justice of the Utah Supreme Court. Thank you for joining us, Justice Lee. Thank you for having me. So let's jump right into it. What is corpus linguistics? So a corpus is a body, and uh, linguistics is the study of language. And so corpus linguistics is a field, a subfield, I guess, of linguistics that studies language usage and language patterns through systematic searches of databases or bodies of language. The uh, databases or the corpora, the plural of corpus, that often have been used to analyze language usage in judicial opinions. Um, Many of them are uh, corpora that are housed at Brigham Young University. There's something called the Corpus of Contemporary American English, or COCA, the Corpus of Historical American English, COHA, and the Corpus of Founding Era American English, or COFIA, and all of them are housed at either at the university uh, through Mark Davies, who is a linguistics professor at Brigham Young, or at the law school. The COFIA suite of corpora are housed at the law school at Brigham Young. How did you get interested in, in the study of corpus linguistics? Just this seems like textualism with a very empirical approach, and we all learn about textualism in law school, but walk us through your journey of how you got into this field. Yeah, I think there's sort of two layers or two levels to it. My instincts have long been as a textualist. The things that I read that Justice Scalia was writing when I was a law student, the things that I read that Judge Easterbrook was writing when I was a law student were attractive to me in terms of um, my instincts about law and what makes for the rule of law, the idea that taking language seriously can be understood as a constraint and a limit uh, on judicial discretion and can assure that we are being faithful agents for the people through their legislators as opposed to free agents doing our own bidding. All of that sort of drew me, I think, eventually when I realized there was a set of tools that I could use to try to make this enterprise of understanding language to make it both more transparent and more falsifiable, uh, a little more scientific, um, was attractive to me for all those reasons. It, it felt to me like, when I became aware of it, it felt to me like something that we should have been doing all along and that would allow us to deliver even better on the promises of, of textualism. The other angle on it, I think, is uh, just you know giving credit where it's due. My first One of my first law clerks, um, who's become my co-author on some work that we're doing, has a master's in linguistics. His name is Stephen Moritzen, and he introduced me to corpus linguistics. Actually, when I was teaching full-time before I was appointed as a judge, I became interested in trademark law. Stephen became my research assistant, and I started doing some work on analyzing the way consumers perceive symbols and words and terms in in trademark law. Trademark genericide, for example, is something that you could use a corpus to try to analyze. So Stephen started talking to me about it then, and when he became my law clerk, uh, he proposed that we do some corpus analysis on uh, a case called in-ray adoption of baby EZ, which raised a question about the meaning of a 
of a term in the Parental Kidnapping Protection Act. And that kind of started the ball rolling. So are those the types of cases where corporate analyses are utilized, the cases where you're interpreting a, a word or a phrase? Yes. Typically, the categories of cases we've been using these tools for, you, you might think of as cases involving lexical ambiguity. Lexical ambiguity, meaning uh, ambiguity in our lexicon, where, where terms, um, the fancy linguistic term here is polysemous. A term is, is polysemous if it has multiple senses or multiple meanings. So in the EZ case, for example, the question had to do with the meaning of the term custody proceeding. Specifically, the question was, is custody proceeding, is that limited to awarding custody in the context of a divorce dispute, or does it encompass something like an adoption proceeding? That was the argument in EZ that the, some jurisdictional terms in this federal statute limited jurisdiction, the PKPA, the Parental Kidnapping Protection Act, among other things, is a jurisdiction-allocating statute, and it's it's aimed at the sort of race-to-the-courthouse problem and trying to police jurisdiction in a custody proceeding where parents may be trying to travel to a different state, rushing to get jurisdiction. The question in EZ was, does the statute also apply to an adoption setting? That's a perfect example of lexical ambiguity in the sense that you might think of custody proceeding, well, does this just have to do with any proceeding in which custody in the sense of legal authority over a child is being awarded? If so, you can say, well, an adoption proceeding is the ultimate custody proceeding. Or is it having reference to a particular kind of award of custody and sort of a legal term of art sense in family law in, in the context of a, of a divorce? And so we propose to use the, the tools of corpus linguistics to try to resolve that ambiguity. Can you walk us through exactly how you would do that analysis? What terms are you searching for? What are you inputting them into? What do the results look like? And how do you interpret those results? Sure. There's a very recent opinion from our court um, in a case called Bright versus Sorensen that raises the question of the meaning of the phrase foreign object. So the phrase foreign object appears in a tolling provision of a statute of limitations on medical malpractice claims. One of the questions in this Bright v. Sorensen case has to do with the meaning of that phrase. And in particular, the question is, is foreign object limited to objects that are foreign in the sense of being uh, unnaturally occurring uh, in the body? Or does foreign object have reference to something that was um, misplaced in the body? Let me give you a quick illustration and tell you a little bit about what this case is about. The the Arguments in the case were, look, uh, one side is saying foreign object means um, in a surgical setting, anything that isn't natural to the body. Unnatural sense of foreignness then would include something like a pacemaker or a device that was left in the body. The Bright case raises uh, the question of, or the claims arose out of allegedly unnecessary surgeries. And so one side is saying, look, this type of device that was the purpose of the of the surgery is unnatural in the sense that it's uh, or is foreign rather in the sense that it's unnatural not naturally part of the body the other side the doctor is saying no, no that's not what foreign object means foreign object means uh, it's foreign in the sense of of being unintended it wasn't supposed to have been left in the body so the the doctor's interpretation is foreign object means a sponge or a clamp not uh, an implant 
or uh, some kind of a device that is intentionally left in the body. So this gives rise to the classic problem of lexical ambiguity. You can look up foreign in the dictionary and find definitions that line up with either unintended or unnatural. Um, you can't resolve that kind of lexical ambiguity just with the dictionary. Uh, the, the other thing that corpus analysis lets you do, and I'll walk you through a little bit of, of how it would work and, and what we did in this opinion, is it will let you get uh, broader semantic context. So I can look up not just foreign, but I can look up foreign object. And I can look up not just foreign object, but I can see how that phrase is being used in the context of a medical device. So what we did in our opinion in that case, we, we pointed out these problems and noted the, the deficiency of trying to find an answer in the dictionary. And then we um, went to the corpus of, let's see, I think we may have used something called the news on the web corpus, if I'm remembering this right, which is a bigger corpus. It's uh, much bigger than the corpus of contemporary American English. So you can get more more hits, uh, you know, more um, concordance lines or returns on your search. So you can go to all these are housed at the Brigham Young University, um, Mark Davies suite of, of corpora. If you, if you just do a Google search for news on the web corpus, you'll find it. You'll find a search box. In the search box, you can put into your search box um, for an object as a phrase, and you can try to find when you get some search results, you'll find for an object collocating with, collocating meaning just, you know, co-occurring with references to medical procedures. And then you can get a list of concordance lines, sentences in which foreign object is being used in conjunction with the surgery. That's what we did in that opinion. And, and it turns out both sides actually have a pretty decent argument in that case. We ended up turning then to a different tool to resolve that case. But to, to respond to your question, it was very useful, we thought, to sort of say, look, each side's made an argument here. We have some evidence that you can get in naturally occurring real-world usages of the phrase foreign object in the context of a medical procedure. And we can see roughly equally half of the time when people talk about foreign objects, they're talking about um, things that are foreign just in the sense of being unintended. So people talk about um, implants and medical devices in that way. Alternatively, sometimes they mean foreign in the sense of being unintended, weren't meant to be left there, the sponge or the clamp. You spoke about finding evidence for both sides of the argument. Does that mean that corpus linguistics is not a magic machine where you type in a question and it spits out an answer and that there's still space for human judging? It absolutely means that. Um, and that's an important point to acknowledge. There's a bunch of criticism of corpus linguistic tools in interpretation. Many of those criticisms are aimed at, at, at straw men. Or, and, and the essential straw man argument is corpus linguistics is a theory of interpretation, and it's a theory of interpretation that is based on the idea that the most frequently occurring sense of a statutory term is always the sense that is supposed to be attributed to the text of a statute or if you want to think about it in, in intentionalist terms, that must always have been the intended sense of a term. That is never what any of us have been proposing these tools have suggested. We've gone out of our way to say that is not what we're suggesting. It's rather a tool to give us better evidence, more transparent evidence, of the kinds of questions that everybody is asking uh, w with respect to interpretation. That's really important, and and this is a, a tool that gives evidence and the evidence needs to be needs to fit in with all our of other all of our other tools and theories of interpretation. Let me just close that loop by explaining what we did with that evidence in the Bright v. Sorensen case. 
after finding that, look, we can't really answer this question with corpus evidence, what we did is we returned to um, a familiar premise of, of textual interpretation, which is sometimes when each side has a plausible basis for interpreting the statute, you can look at the statutory structure. You can find something elsewhere in the language, the text and the structure of the statute, that will exclude one of the possible senses. And that's what we did. We found that the statute elsewhere talks about foreign objects being discovered in the body. So what triggers the um, statute of limitations provision at issue is the discovery of a foreign object. And what we said is, once you note that, the unintended object notion of foreign object just can't work. Right? The whole point of the surgery at issue in Bright was the placement of a medical device in the heart, something akin to a pacemaker. Um, so that, even though linguistic evidence suggests that both notions of foreign object are otherwise tenable, in the context of this statute, only one of them really fits or works. So I want to play devil's advocate a little bit on this because you talked a little bit about how this is kind of an evidentiary tool almost. And I'm guessing one of the purposes of this tool is to provide some kind of constraint on judges. But is this really going to be able to constrain judges or is this more a way for judges and justices, of course, to show their work? And what I mean is one of the main input is what the judge or justice is putting into the search terms. And so how can you really be sure that you're constraining judges when that's such a huge part of the output. Let me try to answer it in a couple of ways. A first point to make and a first thing to point out would be to say, constraint doesn't mean um, eliminating every degree of discretion that could possibly be exercised. At least the way I just use this term constraint, I think we need to be realistic and we need to be open about acknowledging that um, the, the, there always will be a level of discretion that judges are going to exercise. To, to that extent, I, I sort of agree the way you framed your question with the, at the outset. I sort of agree that more what this is doing is requiring judges to show our work. But work showing is, is half the battle. I, I, I believe that constraint, especially in the form of sort of limiting degrees of freedom, is really significantly accomplished by making judges show their work. It's important here also to fall back on or, or, or to compare and contrast, I guess, tools that we're using now and compare them to the tools that we have available to us going forward through corpus linguistics. And the, the contribution of the tools of corpus linguistics, I think, is to highlight deficiencies of existing tools and to suggest that if we use these better, more transparent, open tools, we can start to limit the degrees of freedom available to judges because sometimes the data will be very powerful. Elsewhere, the data, the evidence that you get from a corpus search may not be the answer to the question, but at least then judges won't be able to fall back on their priors, on their, on their instincts, and just say, trust me, take my word for it. Here's an answer to this question. So back to the Bright v. Sorensen case. Think about this. If, if we didn't have that evidence available to us, the, the most common move for a judge to make with respect to a problem of interpretation is, um, you know, what I refer to as, as sort of the cherry picking approach. It's, hey, I found a definition of foreign and I found a definition of object. Uh, here's the definition that I like. My premise of interpretation is to follow plain meaning. The meaning is plain because I found a dictionary definition. End of story. Case closed. You see a lot of that kind of dishonest um, really opaque, opposite of transparent ways of judging when it comes to 
problems of interpretation. At a very minimum, opening our eyes to the fact that there, there may be linguistic evidence available to us through corpus analysis is going to make that kind of opacity, uh, I, I think, more apparent. And I think it will also give us steps toward constraining judges, at least to some degree. So there's some discretion there in the input and how you're searching for words, but there's also some discretion when you're reviewing the output as a judge and you're deciding which definition is the correct definition among competing pieces of evidence that you find. So which one's right? Is it the definition that is used most frequently? Is it the definition um, that is used in more uh, legitimate sources? How do you decide which definition is correct? It really depends on your theory of ordinary meaning and, and, and the values behind our commitment to taking language seriously. If the point of trying to find ordinary meaning is a notice-based rationale for our theory of interpretation, it's, a, it's an avoidance of unfair surprise kind of a rationale, then I think that data, that evidence, should be pretty darn powerful for you. Now, here's a caveat. If what you're worried about is not so much... Um, notice interests and an unfair surprise for the general public, but trying to attribute meaning to members of Congress, you might well have a somewhat different notion of ordinary meaning in mind. You might want to adopt a broader um, concept of ordinary meaning, especially if your notion of ordinary meaning isn't so much what is the general public likely to, to think about, what is the top of mind understanding when the public reads the language? But what might Congress have had in mind in enacting this statute? This is sort of taking language as evidence of likely legislative intent. Then you might have a notion of ordinary meaning that would sweep more broadly, particularly where you have two distinct senses. Now, the reaction to all of this nuance on the part of some people is to suggest, oh, therefore, this just isn't getting us anywhere. Corpus evidence isn't going to help with respect to hard problems. I think that's exactly wrong. I, I think, especially in this event, we need more transparency, more openness, more precision about what we mean by ordinary meaning, and more careful thinking about what our, what our theory is. At a bare minimum, the contribution of corpus linguistics then is to highlight our imprecisions in our theory and to require us to be a little more careful about and, and to to be more transparent about what the values are that are embedded in our theories of interpretation. And once we clarify those, then I think the evidence is going to line up with one or the other of those understandings. Do you think this tool, corpus linguistics, and the more empirical approach to um, statutory interpretation and, and inter interpretation in general can have some kind of effect on bridging ideological divides? Have you seen that happen at all? What has been the reception from maybe non-textualist to this theory? So to take your last question first, the initial gut reaction seems to be um, horror and fear and, and loathing and, and just immediate sort of, this is bad. I think a big part of the why is an impression that this is an attempt to replace judges with robots or artificial intelligence and, and to superimpose on the the law of interpretation or the judging of ordinary meaning, you know, some sort of robotic, all you have to do is crunch a bunch of data and you're going to get this outcome. Again, that's not what we're saying. And, and because that's not what we're saying, once you take a step back and become a little more carefully informed about what we're doing, I actually think 
the, the anti-textualists ought to like this more than the textualists in, in many ways. And, and, and this is why this has been one of my big surprises here. In, in a way, what these tools can do is to pull the curtain back on claims about determinacy of language that textualists have been making. And, and it's a little bit of a not so fast. I, I, I've said in a number of things that I've written, we've been under delivering on the promises of textualism. We've been claiming to find determinacy in dictionaries, but it turns out it isn't there for all sorts of reasons. And this is what's really striking to me. The most obvious um, response that I would have expected to this would, would have been textualists sort of saying, what are you doing? Why are you pulling the curtain back? We really like what we've been doing. We get to pretend to find determinacy where it isn't really there and, and, and nobody's called us on it. Please stop calling us on it. So I would think the anti-textualists would find a lot to love in what we're doing here. Who exactly is finding the sources for these corpora? And are there any steps being taken to prevent biases from entering the uh, databases? Yeah, these are really, really important questions. And, and they are questions that linguists ask all the time. The, the whole point of developing something like the Corpus of Contemporary American English is to try to find random, unbiased, representative uh, databases of language from a given language community. So um, I don't have a lot of detail in terms of how Mark and the folks that he has worked with have come up with what he puts into the COCA and the COHA. Uh, but it, it is the whole point of this kind of scientific subfield of, of linguistics, a, a dedication to making sure that we are randomly and in a representative fashion coming up with databases um, that include, I, I mean, speaking of COCA, for example, we've got magazines, we've got transcripts of talk shows, we've got fiction, we've got nonfiction. And it's, it, it's an attempt to have a representative body of language that is added to, um, to the COCA in a way that it will be representative. We always ought to ask, and I wish I had a little more detail for you in terms of uh, the process that Mark has gone to, but we always ought, need to ask the question that you're asking. Because if, if it ever becomes, um, hey, I want to jam something into this corpus because I want to uh, I, I want to skew the results in a way that will help me in an interpretive problem that I'm confronting, we got a problem Be because then then it's going to undermine the whole idea of this being um, an objective, um, unbiased enterprise. I can tell you this, the, Mark Davies never built these for the purpose of, of uh, legal interpretation. Um, he built these to study language in a, uh, you know, social scientists want to study language for all sorts of other reasons. He would certainly have no reason to want to try to bias things one direction or another. But we need to keep our eyes open and we always need to be careful about that, uh, that, that kind of a problem. What are the challenges right now to making these corpora really effective? Two challenges that, that occur to me right off the bat. One on the COFIA side, the Corpus of Founding Era American English. It's just to, to continue to try to grow that corpus and to make it um, as broad and representative as possible. It turns out it's way more difficult to assemble an 18th century corpus than it is a 21st century corpus. Um, but there's an army of students and interns and law librarians and faculty members that are involved um, in the BYU COFIA project trying to continuing to open the doors to finding other um, bodies of language to add to that database. 
you've got to have a big enough database in order to find large representative samples. Um, and in order to find representative samples of, of terminology that may be uh, you know, not as common in a given language setting. So currently at, uh, at the BYU Law School, they're working on adding, on digitizing the Pennsylvania Gazette and adding that to the corpus of founding era American English. Try to broaden it so that it will encompass a little more sort of standard ordinary language as opposed to um, legal language. This is important in constitutional interpretation in particular because some originalists take the view that um, what we're looking for is ordinary original public meaning, sort of standard, how would the public have understood a given clause in the constitution? Then there's also this strand of, of methods originalism, uh, Mike Rappaport and John McGinnis, that take the view of originalism that what we're looking for is uh, kind of more language of a legal dialect. One of the this is an advantage to COFIA, but something that they're continuing to work on. There are subcorpora within COFIA, some of which are more legal language subcorpora within COFIA that are more sort of ordinary language. That's where the Pennsylvania Gazette will fit in to try to expand on that a little bit. And um, another contribution here then is, look, if, if you want to think of a provision of the Constitution as being written in the language of the law, you can pick the subcorpora that are uh, based on legal language. They've, they've got you know, bodies of case law, for example, from the founding era. You can look in that kind of language. If you if you want to more, know more, just what the ordinary public, how they were using um, certain language, you know, you could move in that direction. Let me mention one thing, uh, kind of more broadly, be, beyond the COFIA uh, that I, that I think is at the forefront or or on the horizon of where this needs to go next. Some of the recent criticism of the use of corpus tools has taken the form of um, surveys survey evidence that attempts to attempts to take seriously our premise, which is, hey, ordinary meaning is an empirical question, uh, an empirical question about human language perception. And if we want to understand human language perception, we got a better tool. This is what the critics have said, some of the critics have said. And the better tool is let's let's conduct a survey and ask people what they think about legal language. I think the premise of the criticism is um, Questionable, um, but but interesting. Questionable in the sense that I'm not sure that I have the same degree of reliance as some of those who have conducted these surveys. I don't have the same degree of reliance that information you get when you ask someone to tell you what language means, that they're really giving you useful information about language perception. All kinds of problems with that, maybe not the least of which is when, when you ask people a question on a survey, they're probably trying to guess what answer you're expecting them to give. They may be affected by the mere fact that you're asking them a survey question. They may also be affected by all kinds of other things in terms of just a preference for a given outcome um, as opposed to how language is used. This is an advantage of using corpus tools. The language in a corpus is naturally occurring language. Nobody thought they were being tested for anything when they spoke in the way that they spoke in a book or a magazine or a talk show in the language that gets incorporated um, into, a, into a corpus. For that reason, it is naturally occurring. It is better evidence of ordinary language usage. Now, I say better evidence. 
I do think there are shortcomings. We've talked about some of them. The future that I see is a future in which we sort out a little better how to use survey methods and the evidence that we can get from survey methods. We continue to refine corpus methods and, and we bring those together and, and, and learn from each source of evidence better how to incorporate that evidence into the, into the law. We are really excited to see how all of this develops, both with the survey methods and also with uh, everything you're working on with corpus linguistics. This is really groundbreaking stuff, and we thank you so much for your time talking to us today. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UshyLRev. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify.